Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Grab your stool. We are set to go talking about our good, bad, and crazy martinis today. And Jim, we have a genuinely good, good martini today. And we have to give the Biden administration a tiny bit of credit. And I do mean a minuscule amount of credit because this is not the result they wanted. This is the right result, but it's not the one they wanted. But they're finally, it seems, moving on from the Iran nuclear deal 2.0. But we'll see. It might just be mostly dead, as we learned in The Princess Bride. We'll we'll find out. But uh, Jerusalem Post, the chances of the U.S. and Iran returning to the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, are slim to none, a senior diplomatic source said, adding that as time passes, the less likelihood of sealing a deal. Indirect negotiations between the U.S. and Iran to return to the JCPOA, which limited Tehran's nuclear program in return for the lifting of sanctions, began in early 2021. An agreement was essentially concluded whereby the U.S. would lift nuclear-related sanctions placed by the Trump administration and Iran would return to compliance with the JCPOA's restrictions on uranium enrichment and stockpiling. But in February, Iran began to demand the IRGC's delisting from the foreign terrorist list, which the Biden administration viewed as a non-nuclear issue. As such, it offered various concessions that Iran could make in return that are not related to its nuclear program, such as agreeing not to attack American officials. However, Iran has refused all such offers. According to uh, discussions between uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, as well as his Israeli counterpart, this does not appear to uh, be likely to happen anymore, which was so bizarre that we are essentially outsourcing all of this to uh, the Russians anyway in the midst of us cracking down on Russia. Uh, And the idea that we would be like, yeah, we'll we'll delist you from the foreign terrorist list uh, as long as you just promise not to attack Americans and Iran still wouldn't go for it. Probably a sign you should shelve this thing, and it looks like it will be shelved. Greg, I won't rehash all of our past discussions about the problems with the Iran deal back during the Obama administration, about how it merely delayed the Iranian pursuit of a nuclear weapon. It really didn't stop it. Uh, all the kinds of problems with verification, et cetera. But just going to observe, if you read a lot of you know books by, on leadership, right, and often you get this more in, in business leadership, but I'd like to think it's at least somewhat applicable to government leadership. There's, there's an interesting piece of advice that keeps coming up over and over again, and it is fail quickly. You might be thinking, well, wait, uh, if you're a leader, don't you want to avoid failure? And there are certain leaders who say, you know, yes, but you're, go- you're human beings. Your, group, your staff is human beings. Your organization is made up of human beings. Sooner or later, they're going to fail. Sooner or later, they're going to try an idea that just isn't workable. And the message there is not, you know, be afraid of failure. It is be okay with failure. Try something new and different, but assess whether it's succeeding or failing pretty quickly. And when you realize it's not, you know, succeeding, don't hang on to it and, you know, keep uh, trying the same thing over and over again, banging your head against the wall, hoping that it'll turn around. Realize that it's not working. Scrap the idea and move on to plan B or the other idea. And what you see in this administration is not just that they fail a lot. Not just that they fail a lot after insisting everything's going to be fine, you know, that there's no sign that inflation is uh, uh, out of control and that there's no problem at the border and, you know, uh, we're going to shut down the virus and all these other all these other problems. But the other problem is that they fail very slowly. It takes them a long time 
to alter their course of action once it goes there. They they're still in some argue some form of build back better is going to come back here, even though they've been around this a million times with Mansion, around this with a million times with Cinema. Clearly, what they want is very much lower than what the administration wants and what the rest of the Senate caucus wants. You could either say, "Okay, we're doing the Mansion plan, and it's much smaller, but that's what we can live with," or you can basically do what they've been doing. It's just like hope that someday Joe Manchin bangs his head coming out of uh, getting out of bed or something and suddenly feels very differently about it. But chances are Joe Manchin is going to feel the same thing about it today that he feels felt about it yesterday. And tomorrow he's probably going to feel the same thing he feels about it today. If Iran, if you want to say the administration, you know, had to give it a shot, they had to try to see if Iran was opening negotiations once they took office. Okay, fine. But it was very quickly you know, clear the regime in Tehran was not interested in making many concessions. In fact, they wanted even more concessions than before. And then we wanted that, those concessions just to come back to the negotiating table. And that they were, you know, every time the administration extended its hand, the Iranians metaphorically peed on it. They, there was absolutely no inclination that they were willing to play a ball or be reasonable. And anybody was looking at this as like, look, this is going nowhere. We certainly can't trust the Russians. And, you know, it was very tough to trust the Russians beforehand. It's, you know, if we are in a quasi, uh, if we're having a proxy war in Ukraine or, a, you know, re reignited Cold War, then we certainly can't trust the Russians to look out for our interests in negotiations with Iran. This has been absurd for months at a time. And here we are at the end of April in the second year of this presidency. And the Biden administration is saying, you know, I don't think this is going to work. It's you know, failure is bad, but slow failure is much, much worse. And sad to say, I think slow failure might be the easiest two word summary of this entire presidency. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard to say, boy, that previous administration was reckless to not continue the deal with the country that won't promise not to kill you. Oh, you know, we used a lot of John Kerry conversations yesterday. Greg, that's just for domestic political purposes. <laughs> That's all. They when they say death to Americans, they don't. I've met many Iranians, and none of them have killed me yet. Wow! 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 Well, let's hope this actually uh, is the case. Uh, there are much smarter ways to uh, uh, foster security in the region, and I think the Abraham Accords, uh, focusing on those, building up those relationships, might be smart as well. Hopefully, uh, this administration can at least have a fairly decent relationship with Israel, because the Obama administration relationship with Israel was a disaster. But uh, all right, let's talk about our first great sponsor for the day, Athletic Greens. Uh, we've talked about them uh, before. Fantastic new sponsor. Uh, it's a fantastic way to get all the vitamins and, and minerals and other things that you need in one great tasting shake. And Jim, that was one of the things that really surprised you. Yeah, so they sent us the samples, and I'm like, oh, I guess I got to try this thing. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical. I look at this. Then you look at the package, and you just look at the sheer the, the list of supplement facts just goes on and on. So vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, vitamin B6, vitamin B12, you could magnesium, zinc, selenium, copper. You know, you're like, wow, okay, this is like everything you need in, in you know, substantial amounts and you're just by one spoonful with a glass of water. So then you put it, and it's this green color. You're like, oh, my God, is this going to taste like kale? Is this going to taste like something else? Is this some sur surreptitious effort to get vegetables in me or something like that? Well, no. No, I describe it as like halfway between uh, green tea, matcha, you know, and, and like mint. It's very fresh. It's very pleasant. It's uh, it's not too sweet, but it's definitely not bitter or, or heavy or anything like that. You look at it you're like, oh, I kind of like that. And you drink it, and all of a sudden, boom, you've got all these vitamins that you need for the day in a way that's easier than pills, and you actually enjoy drinking it. 
Yeah, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and other things you need to help start your day correct. Uh, this is a product that will support better sleep quality and recovery, supports mental clarity and alertness, and it costs you less than $3 a day. So you can't go wrong. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash martini. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash martini to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Athleticgreens.com slash martini. All right, Jim, one of the big stories uh, we're looking at today is the Biden administration not even maybe inching anymore, but maybe leaping closer and closer to massive student loan forgiveness. You talk about this a lot today in the morning jolt. CBS News reporting yesterday that Biden, in a meeting with the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, suggested that there could be significant, if not total, loan forgiveness affecting 43 million borrowers who hold more than $1.6 trillion in federal student loan debt. You break it down very well in the jolt of who's actually going to be impacted by this. A lot of different bullet points about where they live, what their ages are, what their income is, but you boil it down this way. In other words, without an income cap, forgiving $10,000 per borrower would most benefit whites under the age of 40 who have graduate degrees and live in high-income majority white neighborhoods. This is one of the most democratic-leaning and outspoken progressive uh, demographics in the country. It's a wealth transfer from taxpayers to the Democrats' Twitter class. So, Jim, there's the inflation aspect of this, of course. It's only going to get worse because of more taxpayer uh, spending on this. But uh, what are your big takeaways from this if it happens? Well, one of the reasons we hadn't really talked about it too much on this podcast beforehand is that, you know, I, periodically my colleagues, in particular Charlie Cook, would bring this up and say, I can't I believe Biden's going to do this. And I look at this and say, come on, Biden's not going to do this. He had been something of a skeptic of this on the campaign trail in 2020 compared to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And it just seemed like such a self-inflicted wound and such a, uh, such a you know, economically bad move, such a catastrophic moral hazard that they're really, you know, even Biden wouldn't go and do something like this. Well, at least according to CBS News and these uh, members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus that met with Biden, yes, he is. And maybe we should never say those words, oh, Biden wouldn't be dumb enough to do that or something like that. The the point, you know, my, again, Michael Byrne and Doherty, a bunch of my other colleagues have written about this and all of them are talking about why this is a bad idea. But I was kind of pleased this morning to come up with something that I don't think anybody else had discussed. It was a study from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that really got into the nitty gritty about who would benefit the most. And, you know, uh, right now it sounds like the proposal, the, the minimum proposal that's on the tables for giving $10,000 of debt per borrower. That adds up to $321 billion in federal student loans and about 31% of the borrowers would be uh, eliminate all of their debt. That's like nearly 12 million borrowers. Now of them, 67% are under age 40. Um, now there are ones who are older generally have more debt, probably because they went to graduate school and thus spent more years in school uh, doing so. Uh, but you know, about 60% of the forgiven loan dollars would benefit those under age 40. You know, now you know, some of them just very young adulthoods, probably in their 20s, have their fresh out of college or fresh out of graduate school. Um, but then you get into the really kind of more, you know, curious demographic numbers. There are 25% of the population, but borrowers who live in high income neighborhoods 
hold 33% of federal balances, while borrowers residing in low-income areas hold just 23% of the balances. If you have a $10,000 forgiveness policy, 33% of the forgiveness will go to majority-minority neighborhoods, while 67% would go to majority-white neighborhoods. Now, they don't have the racial demographic, but let's face it, if you live in a majority-white neighborhood, you're more likely to be white. If you live in a majority-minority neighborhood, you're more likely to be uh, minority. Are there whites who live in these neighborhoods who benefit from in a majority-minority neighborhood? Sure. Are there minorities who live in majority-white neighborhoods who would benefit from this? Sure. But by and large, more of the benefits are likely to go to white borrowers. Um, oh, by the way, if you increase the forgiveness amount beyond $10,000, that increases the share of the total forgiven debt for higher credit score borrowers and those living in na richer neighborhoods with a majority of white residents. Now, I look at all the people in the world, in this, all the people in this country who need help. You know, unemployment's low, which is nice. And in fact, I think the unemployment rate for college graduates is down to 2%. So these people have jobs. You know, it's, it's a different story. I, I, very few people disagreed with putting a moratorium on federal student loan payments back in March 2020. You know, economy was shutting down. People were staying home in quarantine. Lots of people couldn't make money. That's fine. But I think everybody was fine with that. Once the unemployment rate got down to 6%, you know, kind of that historical average, goes a little bit further, goes a little bit further. It started to be, okay, when is it reasonable to ask these people to start paying back this money? Because they signed contracts promising to pay back the money. And what we are seeing here is this basically this rewriting of the social contract. Can you find somebody who got out of paying their debts because they had good lawyers or good accountants or they hid some of their assets or income? Yeah, you can find those isolated. But for almost all of us, it's a pretty you know clear, fair, simple system. May not be ideal. Isn't exactly what you want, but you take out a loan to buy a house, you have to pay it back over time with interest. You take out a loan to buy a college education, you have to pay it back over time with interest. And now all of a sudden, Joe Biden's coming along and saying, "Well." If we feel like you're doing having a hard time, we'll have the taxpayers pick that up. And so if you paid back your student loans, you kind of were a sucker. You you got you're kind of a chump. You paid back money that you didn't really need to because Joe Biden was going to come along and pay for it for you. Or actually, Joe Biden was going to use everybody's money to pay it back for you. Now the benefit doesn't go to everybody. The benefit goes to you who got the education. By the way, a few people pointed out that just because you went to college just doesn't necessarily mean you got an education, but let's <laughs> I'm going to be I'm going to make that assumption, you know, for now. Um, so, oh, by the way, it's not that student loan forgiveness is what is causing inflation, but it is another one of those factors that is exacerbating it because by not having anybody pay student loans since March 2020, well, all the money that ordinarily would go to those student loans, if they've chosen not to repay them, is bound money they've got, and chances are they're using it for consumer spending. Well, you know, that's, that's an extra additional consumer spending. As counterintuitive as it may seem, we need people to have less spending money right now. It's a, I know you're like, oh my God, why would it? Well, here's the thing. The more you throw money at people right now, because inflation's out of control, the worse inflation is going to get because consumer demand is going to keep going up. You, until their supply increases, you got to work on the supply chain problems. Until uh, there's enough goods, you're going to have this phenomenon of inflation. If inflation is what's really hurting Americans the most right now, this is not what you want to do. And I guess the way to summarize it, Greg, is that at this point, Joe Biden is pledging he will spend and borrow and spend as much as it takes until inflation stops. <laughs> Boy, he and Elizabeth Warren, no wonder they're kindred spirits on this issue. They don't understand a thing. Uh, Jim, two quick thoughts here. Uh, number one, first of all, the media is going to love this because think who 
is in the media and think who lives around Washington. They're mostly people who went to grad school. And even though they're making a ton of money, they might still have uh, student loans to pay off. So this is going to be completely one-sided coverage. Uh, the other thing I would have to say is, where's the Joe Biden whisper on this one going, hey, you guys have plenty of money. Just pay your fair share, man. Come on. I think the fact that Biden was in, you know, originally a skeptic is a useful indicator that on some level, when he's, when he's feeling lucid, when the brain power is working, he can recognize the moral hazard here. And he can recognize the political problem of taking from everybody and all the you know people who don't have college degrees in order to pay off the debt of people who do have college degrees. And people will justifiably say, Wait, why is the government helping people with that debt? But they're not helping me with my mortgage. They're not helping me with my car payments. Like Lots of people have payments they don't want to make. Why is it people with high student debt are the ones who are getting the government to step in and help them out? So I think he has that instinct. But again, if they're heading into a disastrous midterm for the Democrats, maybe it's like, you know what? YOLO, do whatever you want, because we're all this is all going to end after November. All right. On to our second great sponsor of the day. And of course, that's my pillow and the phenomenal deal you can still get on the fantastic six-piece MyPillow towel set. Uh, these are fantastic towels, whether it's the washcloth, the hand towel, the bath towel, super thick, soft, fluffy, get you dry super quick, and they stay that way wash after wash. The deal, phenomenal, usually $109.99, now $39.99 a set. The MyPillow six-piece towel set is made from cotton. That's right, grown right here in the United States. Now, some other towels might feel good, but they don't absorb very well. Or they absorb, but they don't really feel good on your skin. They've got that lotion-y feel. Well, every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. For a limited time, get the MyPillow six-piece towel set regularly $109.99 for only $39.99. $70 off with the promo code MARTINI. Visit MyPillow.com slash MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. You'll also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow Giza Dream Sheets, and so much more. Get your six-piece MyPillow towel set for only $39.99 today at MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. MyPillow.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to the crazy martini now and uh, the left freakout over Elon Musk buying Twitter, even though it's going to be a number of weeks, if not months, before everything's finalized here. I'm not sure he's running day-to-day -day operations yet, although uh, folks seeing their, their follower numbers jump uh, suggests that uh, something's changing uh, in the near term here as well. But of course, when you know lefties like Jack Dorsey were running Twitter and Zuckerberg, who still is running Facebook, and on and on and on, uh, were putting algorithms in place to uh, pump up left-leaning stories or left-leaning posts, that was all fine and dandy because we're fighting disinformation, of course. Now that it might be an even playing field, the hair pulling or the hair lighting on fire is already uh, starting uh, to come. And Ed Markey, Democratic senator from Massachusetts, is one of those voices. Here's what he tweeted out yesterday afternoon. Elon Musk and a handful of billionaires now have dangerous influence over the most powerful online platforms. They can't be trusted. And self-regulation has failed. We must pass laws to protect privacy and to promote algorithmic justice for internet users, especially for kids. 
in a follow-up Twitter thread, he said uh, this is very important because right now uh, the algorithm situation is not fair to uh, people on basis of diversity, equity, and inclusion and all sorts of things like that. So Jim, uh, he claims he's been on this issue for a long time. But uh, now that Elon Musk has uh, uh, entered the scene at Twitter, uh, this is apparently a national crisis that has to be addressed immediately. Greg, would this be an appropriate circumstance to use the phrase, okay, boomer? (laughs) I'm pretty sure he's a baby boomer. And first of all, the observation about uh, algorithmic justice, which basically now you begin to realize the democratic playbook is to take any term and just put the word justice after it. (laughs) And justice always means give me what I want, right? That's always the only way they can define justice. You know? um, I, one of the great ironies here is that Elon Musk has said he's going to make the algorithm more transparent, which is great. And, you know, I think because here's the th- you know the other you mentioned that you know some people were seeing a, a boost in their uh, follower numbers. I've seen a little bit, and I don't really care about that. You really can't measure your self worth by how many Twitter followers you have. But a whole bunch of people described weird things that that seemed odd. Uh, they had steady amount of growth, and then it plateaued. And like in, you know, after gaining, you know, a couple people a day for months and months, or in some cases years and years, all of a sudden you're gaining like four followers over a three month period, and you're like, huh, do I suck, or or is there, is there something just I hit a, a ceiling? What's going on there? It's very strange. And then you have this. Um, strange phenomenon in which you put stuff out and it just doesn't get much of a response. And you're like, well, you know, maybe I suck. Maybe it's not very good, but it does seem very weird. A couple of years back, I had done a comparison of then Senator Kamala Harris and then, you know, current, then and current Senator Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz had twice as many followers and he was getting a couple hundred responses, uh, retweets on what he would put out there. Kamala Harris uh, had has had half about half as many followers, and she was getting thousands of retweets on everything she did. Sometimes it would be in that you know three or four times, but there are a couple of times where you would compare two around the same time, and the difference would be like forty times. Now again, you know it's you know, it maybe maybe what Kamala Harris is putting out there is, is much more interactive, or maybe her followers are just much more likely to retweet. You know, you can come up with semi reasonable explanations, and I wouldn't expect every senator to have the same level of retweets and interaction and kind of churn in their amongst their users but it just seems weird that Ted Cruz had way more and was seeing way less activity and vice versa and so a couple of people I've retweeted this out today and a couple of people are like ah you know there are a bunch of reasons for that I'm like sure sure this is an ipso facto evidence that Twitter is up to some shenanigans with this but how much of a disparity would you expect to see in that would you expect to see 40 times a difference between the Harris tweets and the Cruz tweets? Or is somebody else at Twitter messing around with it so that you tweet stuff out and only some fraction of your followers see it? Plus, all the number of times people who I had thought had stopped tweeting, you go and find their account. They've been tweeting the whole time. You just, why, why am I not seeing them? Why is this not coming up in my tweet deck? Why is, you know, so a lot of people, I, I am one of those people who is, let's just say, open to the theory that Twitter has been doing something called shadow banning. They don't ban you. They don't tell you your account's suspended. They just press the buttons, twist the dials. They're doing something behind the scenes where the stuff you put out there just isn't reaching all of the followers that you supposedly have. So what we've seen over the last couple of days, could it be they're purging bots? Sure. You know, um, it's a little unusual to see. Apparently, like, Katy Perry lost, like, 200,000 followers overnight. That's weird. 
That's that's really really weird. And the second thing is, you know, some of these people are getting a couple hundred here, a couple, hundred, but there are some people who are getting more than ten thousand overnight. What is going on there? So a lot of people look at this and say, this is the equivalent of shredding the paper uh, right before you abandon the country <laughs> or something like that. You know, <laughs> it just feels like this is something very suspicious going on. Um, I don't know exactly. So the way, if you want, you know, algorithmic justice, I'd really love to have algorithmic openness because this certainly looks like somebody's been messing around with this to limit the reach of certain people on Twitter and to expand the reach of certain other people. So I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't really believe that uh, any, you know, semi-geriatric Massachusetts senator really understands any of this stuff or knows what's going on. But I do suspect um, something, there have been some sort of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. I'd love to see it exposed and Elon Musk thinks he's going to do it. But when he, you know, when I see, you know, these old senators complaining about billionaires controlling platforms and controlling public discourse, Greg, who opened, who owns the Washington Post? Jeff Bezos. He's, he's a nice, nice, pretty, pretty, pretty wealthy guy, right? Uh-huh. You know, I, yep. you, you really got, you got to look hard, far and wide to find major mainstream media institutions that aren't either publicly owned or are owned by a billionaire in, in one form or another. And so the idea that, oh, Elon Musk is the grand menace. There's, there's a very weird about watching the biggest voices on the left. Greg, I know you've, uh, you know, have you ended up coaching any youth sports at any point? I have not yet. Uh, my wife okay. is uh, coaching my daughter's soccer team right now, even though she knows nothing about soccer, in, in her words. Uh, so I find okay. that interesting. But go ahead. That's what happened to me a few years ago. And I think based on your wife's experience and my experience, Coaching youth soccer has got to have the minimal qualifications. <laughs> you you need to show up. That's about the qualification <laughs> that they're looking for. But anyway, like when you see little kids on a soccer field, they all clump around the ball. They all they all you know, wherever it's going, that's where they're going. They have no interest in spreading out. And this is why, as a coach, I ended up yelling at the kids. You look like a staff meeting out there. And the parents were really amused. The kids had no idea what a staff meeting was. And uh, but just there's this phenomenon. It's very strange in our popular discourse. Remember, like a couple. I know this one. Remember when Joe Rogan was going to destroy democracy? Yes. Did he stop? He stopped <laughs> threatening democracy. He just, you know. Remember when Aaron Rodgers was going to make everybody get COVID, right? Or Gina Carano was was you know some sort of neo fascist. Do you notice how like the, the threat always just seems to go change every couple of weeks, and everybody's really threatened about it. And you know this this it's it's Elon Musk's day to be in the barrel, and everybody's throwing you know stuff at him, and everybody's angry at him. In two or three weeks, um, somebody out in Hollywood will say something or some other figure will, will step in it and they'll be the new enemy of the left and they'll be targeted and all that stuff. And if, like J.K. Rowling has the exact same feeling she had on, on transgender issues like three weeks ago, but you don't hear about it anymore. Or, or you know, you hear much less about it. And it just is this like, you know, I think the, the phrase I used is, and it's a Middle Eastern proverb, the dog barks, but the caravan moves on. Yeah, it's drive-by personal destruction, I guess, in, in certain ways. Uh, I followed your advice, Jim. My wife uh, is coaching, and I, I told her, point a lot and tell them to spread out. So uh, That's right. I, That's the biggest <laughs> thing. If they learn to, if by the end of the year, you get one successful pass from one kid to another, that's the victory. <laughs> that's as good as it gets. I will also point out uh, the two lessons I took, which are good lessons. So I thought my younger son wanted to be goalie because he's like, oh, I don't have to run a lot. Um, which is exactly what you like to hear from youth athletes. I'm looking for I'm looking for the least strenuous position possible, Dad. But he turned out to actually be good at goalie. So sometimes it turns out, you know, your your son actually does know, uh, your child does know what they're actually good at and not good at. And the second thing is, the beginning of the year, I'm like, you know what? There are no there's no I in team. There are no stars. 
I don't care if somebody runs faster than the other. You all have positions. We're all going to pass. We are going to play team-oriented. By I think it was like eight games. By game four, it's like, no, no, just pass to that kid. He can always score. <laughs> We're going to run up the score on these guys. We don't care. Yeah, after all, you got a winning percentage to maintain here. Let's uh, let's keep it going. But uh, no, this is going to be interesting to watch. First of all, yeah, older lawmakers talking about the internet has always been fun. I remember Ted Stevens talking about the internet being a series of tubes and so forth. That was uh, it's that not was... a dump truck. He's right. He, he was he was <laughs> correct about that. Yeah. I'm also waiting for the uh, the street demonstrations where we can say, what do we want? Algorithmic justice. When do we want it? Now, especially since Elon Musk is running Twitter. So uh, Algorithmic is hard to pronounce. Algorithmic is hard to pronounce. <laughs> Another day, more craziness. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great day and uh, join us again on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. It, it does seem as though a lot of people have had a, a pour, cold water poured all over them really quickly when it comes to China. And I think probably COVID was part of that for many. And you sort of start your book in this place. You, you ask, how different would those early days of the pandemic have been if we had a sort of harsher worldview as a country, as a government, um, as a military probably towards China? What would that have looked like? I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.